0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2019. Today's episode is titled, Dress Appropriately. While it is commendable to simplify codes of conduct and allow decisions to be made at the lowest possible level, one must not forget the reality of human depravity. Don't assume that all workers will consistently make wise choices, choices aligned with biblical standards, Only those who are self-governed under God will make wise choices because they are internally motivated to obey God's standards. However, those who are not self-governed under God will be governed by their depraved nature and will not consistently make wise choices. These people will need detailed codes of conduct and accountability. This will cost time and money, which should remind us that managing sin is always costly. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled why then the law well this morning we want to talk about the topic why then
1: the law this is from galatians chapter 3 verses 19 through 29 in the introduction to the epistle paul greeted his brothers and sisters in christ by acknowledging the role of christ to give himself for our sins to deliver and rescue us from the present evil age this is galatians 1 verse 4 Implicit in this statement is the truth of total depravity. Mankind needs a rescuer. Human works can never save mankind from his fallen condition. Given this, why then the law? The law was based on mankind's innate attempt to rescue himself, that is, to be his own savior based on his own works. Adam and Eve modeled this flawed presumption in the garden when they made garments of fig leaves, seeking to make themselves acceptable with God. But only God could make them acceptable. Only God could rescue them. Only God could save them. This was, was prophetically displayed when God made garments of animal skins and clothed Adam and Eve with them. Scripture records in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. By this act, two key principles of reconciliation with God were revealed. First, forgiveness of sin requires the sacrifice of blood. See Hebrews 9.22 as well. And second, only God can affect the salvation of mankind. These principles foreshadow and point to the singular gospel. The remainder of scripture in the Old Testament would reveal the fullness of the salvific plan and power of God through Christ. And of course, the New Testament was the fullest revelation of that salvific plan. The truth begs the questions. If reconciliation with God is based on the sovereign grace of God, then why then the law? If man is impotent relative to saving himself by his own works, why then the law? Why would God give a system of righteousness that presume human potency? These are vexing questions. In the first nine verses of Galatians chapter 3, Paul set up the answer to this seminal question why then the law, by posing a number of leading questions. He asked the Galatian believers. For example, in in verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, given that you have the Holy Spirit within you, did you receive him based on your works or as a gift from God? In verse 3, he says, if the Holy Spirit empowers your salvation, why do you think you empower your salvation? In verse 4, he says, if you suffered at the hand of legalists, why are you trying to become a legalist? In verses five and six, he says, The Holy Spirit works supernaturally among you, based on your uh, but is, excuse me, does the Holy Spirit work supernaturally among you based on your works or based on the sovereign pleasure of God? And in verse six he said, Did Abraham attain righteousness standing before God based on his works or faith? And finally, verses seven through nine he says, Are not the true sons of Abraham those who display faith as Abraham did? Then in verses 10 through 18, Paul is more direct in asking the question, why then the law? He asks, in verse 10, if reliance on the law for right standing with God means that one is accursed, why then the law? In verses 11 and 12, he asks, if the Old, Old Testament bears witness to the fact that righteousness will, the righteous will live by faith, not works, and the law is not of faith, why then the law? Verses 11 and 14 say, if Christ is the fulfillment of the blessing of the Abrahamic promise, why then the law? Verses 15 through 17, if the law did not annul or change the Abrahamic promise, why then the law? And finally, verse 18, given that the promise of right standing before God was given over four centuries prior to the law, why then the law? The existence of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, is indeed a vexing question. The law seems to provide no real benefit and serve no purpose. Nevertheless, vast portions of Scripture are committed to recording the period of the Old Testament law. In fact, I would say the vast majority of Scripture is built around the Old Testament law. Why then the law? In this section of Galatians, Paul asks a similar question. Why then the law? The law was given to reveal the depth of human depravity and therefore set up the historical advent of Christ. In other words, the law was all about paving the way and pointing the way to Christ. The default nature of fallen mankind is the way of fig leaves as demonstrated by our ancestors Adam and Eve. In response to their sin in the garden, Adam and Eve presumed to possess the potency to remedy their fallen condition. That is to reconcile themselves to God. As their descendants, we presume the same and seek to perform works for God that give us the right to demand acceptance with God. The law was given to teach us that human potency is not efficacious. There is nothing wrong with the law. The law served its intended purpose, not a vehicle of salvation, but a vehicle of revelation. It revealed the depth of human depravity and mankind's need for a savior. So let me read Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29, and then we will uh, make some comments about this text. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So let's look at the first two, two verses, verses 19 and 20. I'll read this again. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the promise should come to whom The promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The theme of the last portion of Galatians 3 is stated in the vexing question, Why then the law? In verse 19, Paul gave a summary answer, which he explained in the following verses. The summary answer was that the Mosaic law was given because of transgressions. The law was intended to clearly demonstrate the depth of the fallen condition of mankind and mankind's impotency to rescue himself therefore mankind needs a savior the law was never intended to be permanent it was temporary its role in history was to point us to the one through whom the promised abrahamic blessing would be fulfilled christ was that fulfillment he was the specific offspring of abraham through whom the unilateral, unconditional promise of God would be fulfilled. This blessing was deliverance from the present evil age, and the blessing was given to all ethnic groups. See Genesis 12, verse 3. In other words, the law given to Israel was always intended to point all of mankind to Christ. The Mosaic law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Angels who are spirit beings worked through Moses, a human being, the presumed intermediary here, to put the law in place. An intermediary implies two parties. The two parties were God and the Israelites. God offered Israel a covenant. If the Israelites would obey God, they would be his special people on earth. Below are the words of the covenant first communicated by God to Israel through Moses. This is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 8. Now, therefore, if you, that is the people of Israel, will indeed obey my, that is God speaking, my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that God had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord offered to the Israelite a covenant conditioned on their obedience to him. In return, they would be his called-out people, his ecclesia, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. By contrast, the Abrahamic promise was unilateral. There was no requirement on Israel's part. Therefore, there was no need for an intermediary. Fulfillment of the promise was in the sovereign purview of God, with no preconditions. God would give Abraham a people, a land, and a blessing. See Genesis twelve one through 3 And the blessing would extend to all ethnic groups. The blessing was justification by faith through Christ, Galatians 3.8. This is the singular gospel. In no way did the law, which came hundreds of years after the promise, alter the promise. The law was given to reveal the human condition of total depravity and mankind's need of a Savior. Now the next two verses, verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. The Mosaic law offered a theoretical way of salvation based on human potency. But mankind was and is impotent, the purpose of giving of a law was to reveal mankind to mankind the depth of his impotency in other words mankind was and continues to be totally unable to perfectly obey the law and therefore cannot satisfy the righteous standards of god consequently mankind is totally depraved therefore salvation could not come through an, uh, the un, salvation could only come through the unconditional Abrahamic promise. This is the clear message of Paul. The fall of man was so complete that mankind lacked the potency to be able to perfectly obey the law. This is what total depravity means. By our own efforts, mankind was and is totally unable to satisfy the standards of God. There was nothing wrong with the law as a standard of righteousness. The problem was the totality of human depravity. Consequently, the law served two purposes. First, the law revealed the depth of human depravity, and second, the law revealed mankind's desperate need for the unconditional Abrahamic blessing. The blessing was salvation by the grace of Christ. A seminal mark of those who have received this grace is faith in Christ, and faith in Christ is not a human work. Rather, faith is the evidence of the divine work of regeneration. Now the remainder verses that we want to talk about today, verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, and we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male and female for you are all one in christ jesus and if you are christ then you are abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise the law was in place until the coming faith would be revealed this phrase is a reference to the faith to faith in christ faith in christ was a marker of regeneration regeneration is the initial salvific event that evidences reconciliation with god through justification in verse 19 paul expands on his initial answer to the question why then the law that stating it was added because of transgressions then in verses 23 and 25 He says Paul used the imagery of imprisonment and guardianship to further elucidate his initial response. The imagery of imprisonment implied restrictions or boundaries. Boundaries are necessary for those who do not or cannot behave properly. Obviously, God gets to define what that looks like. The law was congruent with God's standards, but clearly the Israelites failed to obey it. The law revealed the impotency of mankind to be able to perfectly obey God. Consequently, mankind should recognize his or her impotency to fully satisfy the righteous standard of God. In other words, mankind's powerlessness to change his condition of bondage to sin and death should be evident. This means that mankind needs a Savior. Therefore, mankind is imprisoned in the sense that it should be clear that human potency is inadequate to free mankind from the way of fig leaves. Mankind cannot perform enough good works to satisfy, satisfy God's righteous requirements and therefore be reconciled to God. Paul used the imagery of a guardian to illustrate the role of the law also. According to Strong's Dictionary, the word translated guardian meant a tutor, that is a guardian or guide of boys among the greeks and the romans the name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class the boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them being arriving without them before arriving at the age of manhood the mosaic law was given to train us and prepare us for the singular gospel of the grace of christ From the experience of the law, we should understand that humanity is totally depraved and therefore requires a Savior. The inability of humans to perfectly obey the law does not mean that humans can't, on a rudimentary level, obey some of God's commandments. This gift is called common grace and is universal to mankind. But relative to meeting God's just standard of righteousness, mankind is impotent. Therefore, God in his mercy gave us Christ Who, according to Galatians 1 verse 4, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now that Christ has come, the revelation is clear. Mankind is totally depraved, and the only means of reconciliation with God is through Christ. Consequently, we no longer need a guardian to guide us to this truth. The purpose of the Mosaic Law has been fulfilled. Our words cannot save us. Our works cannot save us. Only faith in Christ can save us. This was always the case. Even in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk famously stated this in chapter 2, verse 4 of his book The righteous shall live by faith. In verse 27 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul used the imagery of baptism to allude to regeneration. Paul intimated that the sovereign work of God through regeneration secured our adoption as sons of God and empowered us to express faith in Christ. The familiar term sons of God is a generic term that intimates our state of being reconciled includes an intimate personal relationship with God and fellow believers in Christ. The phrase put on Christ is a clothing imagery. One should be reminded of Adam and Eve's failed attempt to be reconciled with God by clothing themselves. But what mankind could never do for himself, God accomplished through Christ. So those who express faith in Christ are clothed by God. They have put on Christ. This is a rich expression conveying that divine potency has been granted to regenerate, sanctify, and glorify mankind. In verse 28 Paul comments briefly on the ontological equality of the people of God. Though Christ through Christ the blessing promised to Abraham is a reality to all ethnic groups, all socioeconomic groups and all genders. This intimates that all humans are created by God, we are all totally depraved and we are all redeemable solely based on the work of Christ. Ethnicity does not matter, gender does not matter, and socioeconomic standing does not matter. No one can save themselves from the penalty of sin and death. All are uniquely and individually saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Finally, in verse 29, Paul notes one of the key results of being in Christ is that just as Christ was the singular seed through which the Abrahamic promise came, we who, were, who have put on Christ are now Abraham's seed as well. We are sons of Abraham and therefore heirs of the Abrahamic blessing. This verse provided the transition and provides the transition to chapter 4. Now a couple of theological points and then an application. First, total depravity. The concept of total depravity refers to mankind's impotency to reconcile himself with God. That is, meeting God's just standard of righteousness, or to say it another way, to be reconciled to God. Total depravity does not mean that mankind cannot, by common grace, do some good acts. Fallen mankind, in his natural state of total depravity, can practice the golden rule, can speak truth, can perform productive work, etc. But this ability is rudimentary. And in the end, Scripture indicates that common grace is limited. Consider the words from the closing verse of the book of Hosea. Who is wise let him understand these things? Whoever is discerning, let him know know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Though the transgressors, such as the sponsors of the Tower of Babel project, attempt to walk in the ways of God and have some grace to do so, in the end, like the Tower of Babel, the transgressors fail. Common grace provides the potency for mankind to live obedient to God only on a rudimentary level for a limited time. Common grace is never efficacious on a salvific level. The reality that mankind can never perfectly obey God's standard of righteousness was made clear by James in these words. He said this in chapter 2, verse 10, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Given that perfect obedience to the law is impossible, then in the words of the Apostle Paul, he says this in Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So he quotes Habakkuk there as his evidence that you have to obey perfectly to obey at all. Given the total impotency of mankind relative to his or her salvation, the only solution to mankind's totally depraved state is, is the vicarious atonement of Christ. This is the essence of the singular gospel that presents the truth of double imputation. The judgment for our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We are therefore accepted by God. We are reconciled to God on the work of Christ alone. Now a comment about ontological equality. Ontology is the study of being. Given that God is the creator of all, every human being exists at his pleasure. This means that at the root level, we are all ontologically equal. This does not mean that we fail to recognize distinctions such as ethnicity, social standing, or gender. John Stott wrote the following on this point. A word of caution must be added. This great statement of verse 28, referring to Galatians 3.28 does not mean that racial, social, and sexual distinctions are actually obliterated. Christians are not literally colorblind, so they do not notice whether a person's skin is black, brown, yellow, or white. Nor are they aware of culture, unaware of the culture and educational background from which people come. Nor do they ignore a person's sex, treating a woman as if she were a man or a man as if she were a woman. Of course, every person belongs to a certain race and nation has been nurtured in a particular culture, and is either male or female. When we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they do not matter. They are still there, but they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. We recognize each other as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. By the grace of God, We should resist the temptation to despise one another or patronize one another, for we know ourselves to be all one person in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.15, the Apostle Paul in reference to himself and Barnabas made an ethnic distinction. He said this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So here Paul makes the distinction that by birth he is a Jew. So in Galatians 2, Paul intimated that this ethnic distinction exists, but in Galatians 3.28, he stated that the distinction doesn't matter with regard to ontology, that is being. Both Jews and Gentiles are, at the core of their being, created by God and therefore ontologically equal. Consequently, we we humans are all equally, totally depraved and saved alone based on the singular gospel of the grace of Christ. Finally, a word of application here. After much internal discussion, one of the major US corporations recently reduced its dress code from 10 pages to two words, dress appropriately. How does one define appropriately? There are some who think that t-shirts, shorts, or that is, jeans with holes in them, and flip-flops are appropriate dress for work. There are others who would totally disagree. So who's right? How does one make this decision? In other words, who gets to define the standard of right and wrong relative to what is appropriate dress? Most likely the leaders of this organization have a perspective on what is appropriate dress, and it would appear that they assume that others would share their view. Therefore, they delegate the responsibility of determining what's appropriate dress to the workers, assuming that the workers would choose what they would choose. In a world where relativism is widely embraced as a personal metric of ethics, why would the leaders expect unity with workers on the definition of appropriate dress? These leaders may have missed key lessons from Galatians 3. The role of law is to define standards of deportment for those who don't know the standards or don't want to submit to these standards. The Apostle Paul in this chapter in Galatians explained that the Mosaic Law was given And why it was given, it was given to those who did not understand their own depravity. Accordingly, the law established a divine standard of deportment, and God held them accountable. That is, he held the Israelites accountable to that standard. In the end, the Old Testament Israelites failed to meet the standard in their own strength, which revealed their impotency and need for divine empowerment. They needed the grace of Christ in their lives. So it is with humans today. We all need a divinely defined, uniform standard of deportment and the grace of Christ to empower us to live according to God's standard. The gospel of the grace of Christ produces people who are self-governed under God. Those who are self-governing under God take responsibility to do what's right, and their definition of what is right is that which aligns with ethics as defined by God. God's ethics are most clearly revealed in Scripture. This means that right and wrong are most clearly defined by Scripture. The common metric of ethics today is pragmatism, whatever works. Most people are persuaded by empirical data that is is, rather than Scripture. The reason to behave in a certain way is how well it works, not whether or not it is right or wrong. At least that's what most people think. From a Christian worldview, however, The reason to behave in a certain way is first and foremost because it is consistent with Scripture, and secondarily, that it produces favorable results. Scripture, therefore, provides the standard for making ethical decisions. Only recipients of the grace of Christ will be empowered to value Scripture this way and empowered to align with biblical standards. These people will be self-governed under God. The dress code dress appropriately will work for those who are self-governed under God. They will make wise choices because they value biblical ethics, as the leaders presumably presumed. Presumably. But, but for those who are not self-governed under God, they will not value biblical ethics and therefore will not make wise choices. If the company wants to make a sound dress code, they need every worker to be self-governed under God. Short of this, the the leaders will be forced to go back to a detailed dress code that stipulates specifically what the workers can and cannot wear. People who are not self-governed under God do not have the law and the dress code, they will have to have the law of the dress code because like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament times, their human nature will not allow them to consistently make right choices. But people who are self-governed under God We'll take responsibility to dress appropriately according to the standards of God. May God give us grace to learn to be self-governed under God.